0: Welcome to WEXCast, the podcast series that delves into the multidisciplinary work of the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Dave Philippi, director of film and video at the WEX. I'm here with my colleagues, Jennifer Lang, who is the curator of the film and video studio program, as well as Chris Stoltz, the associate curator in film and video. And even though our programming for 2018 is, has kicked off, we thought it would be interesting to get together and look back at some of the visiting filmmakers that we hosted in 2017. Um, it's been a, a point of emphasis for a number of years to bring in as many visiting filmmakers as we can. Um, we know our audiences love hearing from filmmakers firsthand. Um, I I think I did a rough count um, recently, and we had around 30 visiting filmmakers during 2017, along with um, a large handful, maybe as many as 15 other um, experts in the field, critics, historians, um, film preservation experts. Um, And again, it's just something that we really um, try to emphasize being an art center um, that uh, emphasizes supporting artists, the creation of new work, um, and so on. And um, that kind of leads me into uh, the, the, the first project that I thought it would be interesting to highlight. Um, it, it touches on so many uh, bases here at the Wexner Center, and that's the ambitious uh, Pens to Pictures project that we supported during the past year. Jennifer, if you could maybe talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure.
2: Uh, Pens to Pictures uh, is a project that originated um, through the artist Chinoya Chukwu, filmmaker Chinoya Chukwu, who is a faculty, former faculty member at Wright State University. Uh, And she approached us about um, almost a year and a half ago, actually, with a project that from the very beginning I realized would be one of the most unconventional projects that the The film video studio had ever supported and that had the potential to be a really amazing kind of unconventional um, presentation at the very end because it involved five women who are incarcerated at the Dayton Correctional Institution Uh, and basically Chinoya started the project by engaging with these five women and asking them um, she you knew I started the project by engaging with five women who are incarcerated at the Dayton Correctional Institution uh, and, and taught them a screenwriting class, basically her Wright State University college-level screenwriting class. Uh, it was about storytelling. The project has always been about uh, uh, storytelling and shining a light on, uh, on a population whose stories don't often get told and who don't have the platform to tell their stories. So it's really... For Chinoya, it was about it was as much about the the process of telling those stories and the possibilities that were um, that could be unpacked in the process of telling those stories. And it was an incredible journey for the five women for Chinoya, and for the studio program. The residency culminated with a public program, uh, the Director's Dialogue, which is for the roughly the past decade has been um, an endowed public program on art and social change and what what better project to highlight uh, that the Wexner supported, really, I would say, ever, uh, than this Pens to Pictures project. Uh, the residency was unconventional because obviously the women, five women were incarcerated, so all of the editing had to happen here at the Wexner Center, but because the it was it, it was so important to give the women control, full creative control over the project, they had to be a part of that project process, and in order for them to be a part of the process, we basically brought the residency program to the Dayton Correctional Institution. Um, editor Paul Hill traveled weekly, sometimes a couple times in a week, um, to show cuts to the filmmakers and to get feedback. Um, they were really, really a part of a part of the project.
3: The uh, the experiences that the audiences got to have, hearing from from such a range of women that you were able to bring in. Can you you talk about how those programs got formed and then um, presented?
2: So it was important for us to continue to give the five filmmakers a voice and a platform by allowing them to participate, or not allowing them, but asking them to participate in the public presentation of the films. And so the afternoon program, which is probably one of... uh, my favorite and most gratifying programs that I've ever been involved with here at the Wexner Center, uh, featured four of the five filmmakers on stage. Uh, two of the women had been recently released from prison. Two were still incarcerated at the time, and through a relationship, an amazing relationship with the, with, um, that Genoya has with the, um, with the Dayton Correctional Institution, those two incarcerated women were able to travel here from Dayton for the program, and then uh, the the interesting story on, on one of the uh, participants, Tyra Patterson, who was recently um, recently received parole after being incarcerated for almost 25 years uh, for a crime that arguably she did not commit. Um, she w- had been transferred to Cleveland, and so it was we all really, really wanted her-, her to participate and find a way for her to participate. And again, because of you know these amazing relationships and people being open-minded and wanting to support this project and these women, Tyra was um, Skyped in. So she was here virtually. Uh, it was probably one of the most emotional moments um, seeing these women who had worked together for so long on this project be reunited, even if not all physically. Um so that was a really, really important component. like that was the most important component for me, but we also we wanted we wanted to have sort of the micro conversation involving the filmmakers, but then also because it's the director's dialogue on art and social change, be able to talk about a lot of the issues surrounding incarceration and specifically women in incarceration. So the evening program uh, which featured OSU faculty and, um, And community members and Chinoya was really this moment where you could sort of talk about, you know, big picture. Um, And here are two clips from the afternoon and evening panel discussions of the director's dialogue.
1: Hi, uh, thank you so much for sharing your stories and your courage. Um, My question to you is you know, we've seen this now as an audience. What would you ask that? We do now. Um, are there particular forms of support that we can provide now after seeing your films,
4: Tyra? Do you have an answer to that question, or do you want to do you want one of the ladies, other ladies, to answer? Because you have. Well,
5: an I, I um, I personally feel that people can get involved because we will return to society and two of our ladies have already returned and we want to be somebody and we don't want to not be heard or be seen anymore. So I think that just being involved, being there where you are right now supporting us is taking a stand and a step towards the right direction. So I think you're already doing it.
4: And if I could add to that, I think just take with you um,
2: the awareness that you have um, because everybody's situation was different. All of our stories were inspired by, you know, you know, our lives and and they were different. So just take with you the awareness and just try to be conscious of situations that you may see and be
6: able to change at one point or another. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Um, My, my thought on that is like all of these films, I think for us are like, Humanity. So when people are, like, talking about social problems, like, remember that you're talking about people that have actual lives and families, and there's, like, a greater impact. And I think that's what really gets lost, especially about incarceration, Um, especially about women, you know, because, like, we're mothers. You know, we have children, we have families, we have lives, and we have to reintegrate back into that, and we need community support. But, like, when you hear it on the news, it's there's a really tough focus on crime and punishment or there's a really strong focus on the opiate epidemic and you forget that like these are people. So just remember that these are people.
4: Wow, for many reasons. Um, Art is voice. Art is your voice, your expression and in a world where certain people are silenced more than others, it's, it's so critical to use art to stand in your own power through your voice, through your expression. Um, it is, it, it, it you know, with pens to pictures, it was a way of, it was a pathway to joy and empowerment and confidence and purpose. Um, it was a way to, it was a pathway to uh, better self-actualize, um, to realize our worth, to realize our potential, and it expanded our possibilities. So it's not just the art form, but it is the journey and it is the process um, that really allows for this kind of expansion of self.
7: And I would add, and thank you, I would, (laughs) I don't know if we're applauding, but I would add to that, one of the things that I recognize is, and we often share with our young people is that we're the experts of our experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, when we're able to capture those experiences, be it through film or pictures, um, I think right now in this digital age that we are in, we've been bombarded with a lot of images that we cannot unsee. These stories we cannot unsee. And so, what are we required to do having seen these things? Um, A lot of times we talk about the life experiences of people in communities, um, that we don't often get a chance or an opportunity to touch or be directly in relationship to and so when we get opportunities like this too and there were so many powerful stories um, we talked in the back a little bit before coming out here one of the things that we know we must do is think about what we're gonna do next knowing these things and seeing these things and so the power of that the power of our story um, the power of images, I was reminded um, a few years ago when bombs were dropping in Gaza and the images that came out of that, the power of images that are burned on our memory, and we can't unsee those things, and so we must use those things, and they call us into action. So, And I think in addition that it's a form of communication so that we can go beyond things like the kind of sterile statistics to really seeing a reality. That makes us think about it very differently, and make us—you know—once we start to feel it, we're willing to more, more willing to sign on to a a movement or or an action.
0: Yeah, I think one thing that we all recognized in pens to pictures it was this rare event that we could be involved with—you know—in the planning stage, in the um, production, and even post-production stage, and then to see it—you know—be presented here was incredible. And along those lines, um, in September, we presented a new work by. Um, um, I'll use their, their current names, Danny Restack and Sheila Restack, um, to um, local artists whose whose work certainly um, you know has a ripple effect far far beyond um, this area. And um, it was again two more artists that we that ended up on our screen, but also that we um, supported in the post production stage. And maybe Chris, you could talk a little bit about their project.
3: Yeah, Danny teaches drawing at Ohio State, and Sheila teaches um, photography at Denison, and we've been showing Danny's work long before she moved to Columbus, showing her in the box and with screening programs, um, supported their work with residency awards, and this was, was kind of a, a culminating event to several residencies but then also tied in with an exhibition that they were part of at the columbus museum of art and a gcac um, show so there were lots of amazing ties and danny and sheila um, threw themselves into this event and created something much more than a regular screening or visiting filmmaker event the evening started off with a neon-lit backdrop um, where Danny, Sheila, and several um, female collaborators of theirs all read love letters um, and started the evening off with this really um, vulnerable uh, wash over the room and then presented their video and moving between these different modes of expression um, Danny and Sheila's video being one that that seems very vulnerable already being even more so after the the presentations. Um, And yeah, it was just a special evening that um, you had to be in the room to experience.
2: That was a really great event, and I really I love the moments where a residency can culminate in a public program, and especially one that was as absolutely incredible and emotional as Danny and Sheila's. Um, the studio doesn't really have a public face, so these, public, these programs are opportunities for uh, audiences, local audiences especially, to understand the kind of support that we offer um, to filmmakers in general. Also the fact that the work premiered in, in New York at the Whitney Biennial, it's, it's like the, you know, these filmmakers have a local presence, a national presence, an international presence, and the fact that we not only supported the presentation of this work, but also the creation of this work is, it's just, it was a really exciting event and an exciting moment for the Wexner.
3: I'd love to hear, because um, you each have long-standing careers as artists in your own right, And now starting to work together, um, this form of letters and and correspondence and exchange of love seems so tied into, like you're saying, just the practice of making work. So maybe just talk about tying all these ideas of domesticity, like forming a family and collaborating how that feels different than your work as as artists previously solo
5: okay um well strangely ordinary this devotion is the title and that's kind of the beginning of us working together because um i was doing some print making i did silk screens for sheila so i was making these newsprint texts yellow um ink on newsprint that said, strangely ordinary, this devotion. And I found this phrase interesting and I was tying it to her relationship with Rose, her daughter, I was looking at that and um, and wondering what devotion was for myself. So it was the beginning of like, oh, I want to ask this question too. And what we were making was pages for her to draw and write on daily. Um, so it was like that, that, that beginning and then that that question is like sort of endless for me because devotion is not ordinary to me. It's very hard to commit and to stay and so the 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 phrase holds up like we're gonna make a trilogy, this first one and then we have two more to make. But it, it appears in other um, forms, sort of sculpture things and
1: yeah and I think it's interesting, because for a long time when Danny talked about this idea of strangely ordinary, this devotion and where it came from, it was because uh, like she thought that that devotion to Rose was my devotion to rose um, was uh, extraordinary. and And I think, like I was even thinking about that phrase or that text as something that was, Like, I don't, like, I feel like devotion is going in multiple ways. And it's like, how do I reconcile this? Like, who I am, like, what it is to be, have a practice, what it is to have a kid, what it is to be a lover. So I always really, really hated this, like, idea that it was, like, so natural to have this, like, you know, pure devotion to Rose because there's times when I just, like, really don't feel like, you know, taking her to whatever Thing I'm supposed to take her to, you know. Um, I just want to stay in the studio, so so it just felt like much more conflicted to me, and and it still does. And I think that actually that conflict is productive and is part of what allows us to make work together. Is trying to figure out like what are those, you know, relationships and how do they change, and and it's and it's true that like I I feel like we're. Um, the, like there's something really nice about being with someone who will make work with you and it's like this like extra like energy you know like so it's like if you have an idea you have somebody else like you can't just like you know be like ah not tonight <laughs> so and you have like I feel like that's been really helpful to like have this kind of like energetic exchange that um it keeps on creating new questions around maybe coming from this idea of, you know, what it is, devotion, so.
3: Well, and yeah, the the multidisciplinary nature of Danny and Sheila's event um, really heightens what we do in a larger sense here at the Wexner Center. And every once in a while, there's these exciting overlaps between something that might be happening in performing arts or exhibitions and film video. One of the best examples of that this year was um, we were presenting a, production um, by the playwright Suzanne Bocanegra that starred Lily Taylor which gave us an opportunity to have Lily here to talk about her film work
0: yeah um, when we found out that Lily was opening to open to um, doing a Q;A after one of her films we of course um, leapt at the opportunity so um, in October, in the afternoon, one day we showed, I shot Andy Warhol, and then later that evening with, with Lily here, we showed Dogfight. And, um, you know, just thinking back of the, you know, the literally hundreds of, of filmmakers, of directors that we've had here, and even people in other positions like editors and cinematographers, we've really had very few actors or actors. I mean, we've had sometimes the subject of documentaries, but we've never, we've had, you know, again, very few. We had Isabella Rossellini, we had um, the late Jean Moreau, you know, very few actors and actors. And so um, one thing I was struck by was in, in just um, listening to Lily was just getting that perspective, you know, the, um, you know, hearing a person talk about collaboration from the point of, you know, being an, an actor. And, um, and I, you know, she's been the the kind of the the poster woman for independent film for a whole generation, and you know, um, it was just so interesting to to share a little bit of of time with her, and and she was not really. Um, I expected her to be a little bit more introverted and a little bit more just quieter and she was nothing like that at all um she was a, a great person to have um with our audience she was very open and very candid and forthcoming and um and it was just um it was really a surprise having her here and and to hear her talk about um probably well two of my favorite films of hers um I, I shot Andy Warhol um, by Mary Heron, which is one kind of a role, and um, and then Dogfight by um, the great director Nancy Savoca. Um, Lily starred in two films by her, um, Household Saints as well, and um, while she was here, um, Lily talked about both experiences. Um, what I'm wondering, just maybe think more broadly about your filmography, um, some films in particular where you did have a, a chance to maybe expand a character or I don't know if if this is if this happens a lot or maybe it never happens where you have input on the script, you know, my character I don't feel like my character would say this, or you know, things like that. If you some a couple of films in particular that maybe you had more input than than other films.
6: You know, I feel like I I, I found myself not doing things if I couldn't have that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm glad to say that the number was very few where I felt like I didn't have a say. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Mystic Pizza, I didn't have a say. And um, the director and I quarreled a bit. Maybe that was, you know, not taught me a lesson. Because I think my, I was just, I just love collaborating. Mm-hmm. I just do. So, and I don't like it when we're not collaborating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that, but I also really respect the director, and I really want to know what their vision is and support that, um, and then and then work with that, and just try to keep a real open line of communication. And if I if I could, I would create things together and be with the director. And I remember with Mary Heron for I shot Andy Warhol, which funny enough. We, we shot this in Seattle, but we had to shoot a few days in San Francisco, which was a fortune to shoot in, but we had to get a few days for, li- for landmarks and stuff. And it was at City Lights Bookstore that I found the Scum Manifesto. And I remember it was facing out, and I was walking and I just was like, who the hell is that? You know, that great picture of Valerie Solanas. It was like, who is she? And Scum, what the hell is that? And I was like, I've got to see what this is. And I was like, I'm buying it. And um, and then it was funny enough, Mary Heron saw Dogfight. And from that, somehow she thought I should play Valerie. I don't know how the hell she saw Valerie in that, but she did. Um, but um I remember um Mary and I worked a lot together mm-hmm. on on that because she had there was only like one thing on Valerie Solanas in some obscure book on feminism and she was only in four pages of it so it's she was really there wasn't anything on her so mary did all this research boxes and boxes and we looked over it together and worked together and then i'd work on valerie and then i had a i rented a little rehearsal space and i'd have her come in and say this this is what i've got sort of show her this is valerie and then she'd sort of give me some notes or this or that and and um so that was sort of an ideal, mm-hmm. you know, and and just talking and thinking and creating together, you know.
0: One screening earlier in the year that turned out to be a bit of a surprise was um, when we showed Two Trains Running by Sam Pollard, and, when he had, and we had Sam here, and um, just because it really hadn't been released yet, it, you know, it was so early in the film's um, theatrical life that um, it was... It was just like a rare treat to be able to share it with our audience so so early in the film's life. And, and Chris, if you want to talk a little bit about Sam's visit.
3: Yeah, like you were saying with Lily Taylor, having an actress allows for a much different kind of conversation. Usually when we bring in filmmakers, they're usually the director. Um, so having somebody else who comes from a different type of... Uh, Know trade um, within the filmmaking world. It, it allows for a very different co- type of conversation. And Sam Pollard started off as an editor. Um, he's edited. I mean, if you watch movies, you've seen something that Sam Pollard has worked on. Um, he, all of Spike Lee's documentaries, um, When the Levi's Break, Four Little Girls, countless um, major things for PBS. Um, But he started working as a director much more and um, gotten out of editing. And so he was able to talk with both the perspective of a director and an editor, um, and in a very accessible, generous way that um, just charmed the audience over and made for... The Most Lovely Evening. Um, Here's a clip where he's talking about how he started his career. And it's quite inspiring in that um, it's the most um, guileless um, way to start a career, just kind of out of curiosity, um, building a beautiful life for yourself.
8: Her question is how did I get started making films? Uh, As I was saying to Chris when we had lunch today, I was uh, a 21-year-old young man going to Baruch College in New York City. I was on the path to become a rich businessman. (laughs) I was majoring in marketing, and I was not happy as a junior in college. I went to a counselor one day, and I said I was looking for some after-school activity, and she asked me, what did I like? And I said, I love books. I love to read. I grew up reading books all the time, going to the library, as I was saying to Chris, and I loved old movies. I grew up watching those old Hollywood movies with everybody from Burt Lancaster to Sidney Poitier to Ava Gardner. I loved movies. So she said, the Publix television station in New York City, WNET, has a film and television workshop that they started in 1968 after Dr. King's assassination, to get more people of color in the editing room, behind the camera, producing, shooting, doing sound. It's a one-year program, she said, two nights a week, six to ten professionals come in and teach you how to make films. Why are you interested, Sam? I said, no. <laughs> I said, I like movies, but I don't really care about how they make them. But she was pretty persuasive, and she got me to have an interview. I got accepted to that program. And after one year of making little short films and gravitating toward the editing, I was able to get a job as an apprentice on the film. I think you guys showed it at the Wexner here, right? Yeah. Gondrian Hess. It's a low-budget feature film, all pretty much all black crew, except for the editor, who's this gentleman, Jewish gentleman, who took me under his wing and mentored me for three years. His name is Victor Konevsky. And from him, I just fell in love not only with editing films even more, but fell in love with editing and making documentaries.
0: Yeah, and again along the lines of you know having artists here and, and hearing um, different perspectives from people that might occupy a different place in in the creation of a film. Um, in September, as part of the annual Cartoon Crossroads Columbus, we had the cartoonist uh, Dürf Backdürf here um, to uh, in conjunction with a screening of his film My Friend Dahmer. Sorry, not his film, um, a, a film My Friend Dahmer based on his. Um, terrific graphic novel, My Friend Dahmer, which has now been translated into I don't know how many different languages um, around the world. And it was just um, such a great night. Um, Durf went to Ohio State. He had a lot of his friends in the audience. He had people um, that maybe he crossed paths with while he was at at Ohio State in the audience. And, you know, he really spoke to what a special night this was to come back to Ohio State, where he basically um, kind of got his start as a cartoonist working for The Lantern, um, being influenced by Lucy Caswell, who was the head of the Billy, or well, then the just the Cartoon Research Library, now the Billy Ireland. And um, so it was a special night in that sense. Um, but then also to hear from a person, you know, again, speaking of someone, you know, where we rarely get to hear this point of view, here's someone who, you know, created this um, acclaimed and popular graphic novel that then basically gets turned over to someone else to do with as, as they see fit. And um, so we got a little cha- or got to hear from Durf about that experience, um, seeing his work um, turned into a film. Um, and, and for those who don't know the story, you know, Durf basically went to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer, and it's a, it's a memoir about Durf, but it's also kind of, you know, seeing this this person um, from, from Durf's perspective, who obviously went on to be one of the most notorious serial killers in American um, history, and... Um, you know, it just, it, it's its such a um, charged subject for so many different reasons, and I think Durf has always um, spoken to those reasons um, very well.
9: You know, the last seven years or so have been this, this amazing string of great events, and, and this one, for me, is right up near the top. Um, you know, this is, this is coming home. And as Jeff said, uh, this is where I began my cartooning career, and it has always been a special place. And to be able to show this film here is just, it's an amazing treat. And when I called, uh, when I told uh, Don Filippi, Don, is it Don or Doug? When I told Filippi about this, uh, (laughs) about, this film, you know, I said, man, it'd be great if we get a showing, and he just said, you know, wait a minute. And like ten minutes later, he had this thing uh, in the bag, and I just thought, wow, this is this is so much better than some stupid, uh, you know, uh, Q and A with me up here blabbing about my career. So, and it, it is just wonderful to be here in a comics setting, you know, comics people, because up till now it's been film fest, and you know, film film, film people are weird. <laughs> and I am just so happy that, that, that we're here tonight. And by the way, uh, my friend Dahmer, I just found out today or, or last night, uh, won the top prize at the Austin Film Festival. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> Dahmer was always written off as by a lot of people, and understandably, they just consider him a monster. And when you do that, um, I think it removes responsibility because, you know, he was a monster, he was born a monster, what he did was inevitable, and that's just the way it is. But the story of my friend Dahmer is the story of failure. Everybody fails, particularly the adults. His parents, the administrators, the teachers, the cops, which you don't see in here. Um, his friends fail, and Jeff himself fails, spectacularly. And... If you, if you just write him off as a monster, then we learn nothing from those failures. And maybe we learn nothing anyways, because it seems like these guys keep popping up. But these are things that are, are at least worth, worth pondering and worth talking about. And that, I think, is the value of the story, and hopefully the value of the film. Well, we had a lot of conversations about you know, capturing the time, because it's a period piece, and that's, you know, that's really hard to do now. These are events that took place 40 years ago. So to, to pull that back to the 70s, it was really really a tough thing to do. We had a lot of conversations about that. Because Jeff was, as, like, as we all are, It was a product of his time and his place. And I think the previous movies about Dahmer, and there have been a couple, really kind of blew that. They didn't, they didn't get it right. So I actually had Jeff, uh, Mark come to uh, my hometown, and we went through the book scene by scene. I drove him to the actual spots. And that's when he got the idea of filming it in Jeff's house. That house is Jeff's boyhood home. It's owned by a friend of mine who I tried to talk out of buying that damn house and he did anyways. <laughs> and now he's, he's stuck there. It's a beautiful house. It's very distinctive. You know, it's almost a character in itself in the book. But they filmed it right there and that really kind of gives it this, I mean, uh, extra power because the cast really felt that when they were there. Um, because somebody died in that house you know, very real place. And, you know, there was no clowning around when they were filming that house. Everybody was just kind of, like, looking out of the side of their eye, and they were they really felt it, especially being in character and, and doing those things. So, I, I mean, I think that was part of the process that really helped that, you know, he came, he saw, and he he didn't film it in some suburb of New York. He filmed it in Ohio.
3: Yeah, as Durf was talking about in that clip, the importance of location, it makes me think about another filmmaker we brought in this year um, who I consider one of the great regional filmmakers in this country. Um, Tony Buba has been making films in Braddock, Pennsylvania just outside of Pittsburgh for over 30, um, almost 40 years at this point and um, We brought Tony in in the context of uh, our first documentary film festival called Unorthodox, and Dave and I have talked about, quite a bit over the years, that um, documentary filmmakers are often the most interesting and satisfying filmmakers to bring in, and audiences really respond. There's so much concrete things to talk about um, in terms of subject matter process of making it. So having a weekend devoted to documentary filmmaking allowed for great filmmaker visits and conversations. And Tony Buba um, has been, like I said, filming Braddock for about 40 years, chronicling the rise and fall of a a very rust belt town. And we showed a film of his, um, Lightning Over Braddock, that in a way, foretells in the 80s, like a lot of the issues that would come to the surface more recently with the Tea Party or Occupy Wall Street, um, just general growing dissatisfaction um, among various um, disenfranchised constituencies in this country. Um, And we also showed a video in the box called Washing the Walls with Mrs. G from 1987, with Tony interviewing his grandma, and um, who has a very thick um, Italian dialect that needs subtitled, and Tony gets very playful with that. But uh, I think that idea of both uh, um, the charm and the location-based identity politics, I guess, of, of Tony Buba set up this clip nicely. It's so interesting watching it in 2017, almost 30 years after it's made, and after this last election cycle, countless articles written about the towns left behind, and, and feeling yeah. this film feels so prescient in that way. I wonder if you could talk about. Yeah. Braddock, thirty years just,
10: on. When I'm looking at this now, I look at it, you know, sometimes I look at it. I look at I mean, when our first, the intentions were that the, the mill workers had lost their jobs, and for me, replacing Sal with Steve is sort of the office worker, the uppie, the uppie at that time, replacing the the worker. And, I, and then, then Sal gets mad at me, and you know, and, t- and says, "Why didn't I come after you before?" And I, I, was thinking myself of being the bosses. Now I looked at it just now, and I was telling Janet, me and the chair sort of rem is, to, to me. I'm the Democratic Party, and Sal is looking at the Democratic Party. You've abandoned me. You, you, you know, you no longer think about me, and uh, I should have killed you off a long time ago. I mean, that's that's how I, re- that's how I'm reading it now. Is me representing the Democratic Party, and it's sort of what this election is, and in the abandonment, and, and you know, and the, the, the Trump support. I mean, that, that kind of thing. But Braddock, you know, Braddock really hasn't changed all that much. I mean, it's. Uh, the town is still, I mean, there's a lot of buzz in the papers and that kind of stuff about it, but the reality is the poverty levels is still high. It, it's even probably worse than it was. And, uh, you know, in, in the split, I mean, Brad to me has always served as a microcosm of the whole economic uh, structure of the United States. And you come in now, it's even more so in, in some ways because as you come into the town, which there's a free store, which is owned, which is run by. Uh, uh, the mayor, the Fetterman, and his wife—they have the free store, and you can get people come down there, and there's lines for clothing and food. Then you go less than a mile down the other end of town. Is Kevin Sousa opened a restaurant there? It's a cost a million dollars to open. You know where the entrees are forty, fifty dollars, and it's a it's a it's a gourmet restaurant. So within this one strip of town, there's all the whole economics. I mean, so you have people on one end. African-Americans, mostly, you know, and poor whites getting the free stuff. Then on the other end is, uh, is this restaurant, which nobody in town can afford to go to. And, and it depends on people coming in from the outside to do it. I mean, so it's really, a, yeah, the, the whole split is still there. And I don't quite know how to weave all this in, in, in another piece, but I keep thinking about it.
0: One of the, the, the real highlights um, for me during the past year was, was finally getting um, – Charles Burnett, the great um, independent filmmaker to, um, to the Wexner Center. We've tried a number of times in the past and it's, it's always interesting, um, you know, people will say, why don't you bring in this person? Why don't you bring in this person? And um, if only it were that easy. And, and Charles is a person, you know, that we've extended invitations to and, and in a couple of cases, I think, you know, fairly close to confirming his visit only to have maybe um, a film pop up or another project which, which um, forced him to, to postpone. And so um, on the 40th anniversary of his landmark film, Killer of Sheep, we were um, finally able to host him in, in October, and again, it was just, you know, such an honor to have him here. Um, he was, you know, around that time it was just announced that he was, um, around that time it was announced that he was going to be receiving a Lifetime um, Academy Award, and he um, you know, here's a person that's accomplished so much in his career. You know, um, so many great films: To Sleep with Anger, My Brother's Wedding, Killer of Sheep, as I mentioned, The Glass Shield. Um, you know, he's done all kinds of work for television, and yet it remains a struggle just to get just to get films made. And there there are certainly different reasons for that. But he really um, embodies. Um, the, the spirit and the experience of, of an independent filmmaker, um, never compromising on, on content, um, always telling the story that, that he is interested in, in telling and telling it his way, which sometimes means that um, it, you know, there's going to be time between projects. Um, you know, he needs to work on raising money and, and so on. And um, it was just great. We, we had an extra session while he was here, um, he, he spoke after a, a screening of *Killer of Sheep*, but earlier in the day we did a um, kind of a master class for area filmmakers, and, um, and Charles was gracious enough to spend time with them. And um, it was just amazing to listen to someone with all of this experience, um, and to, and to see how our you know the the filmmakers in the audience responded. Um, being able to to kind of benefit or to to listen to all of this experience, it was really a memorable visit.
11: When you grow up with, you know, like the civil rights movement as being a a big factor in how you look at things, you know, and your approach to the art or whatever it is, um, because that's, that was, um, one of the reasons why I got into film in many ways, to try to say something or do something, you know, that would reflect who who we are as people, you know, because when you see these movies that Hollywood produced, um, that, uh, showed in a distorted way who we are, you know. And so a lot of us who came in the film department at that time or got interested in the film uh, wanted to, you know, uh, change that in the attitudes and things, Uh, you know, because Birth of a Nation was a big factor in how we saw things from from Birth of a Nation on, you know. And so uh, I had this sort of, like most of us then, you, know, you can't tell me my story, you know that kind of thing you, you know and I, which was not a very good <laughs> idea if you wanted to 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 be friends with these people in the mm-hmm. business, you know because um you know particularly when you see a lot of things in the press which are, you know doesn't <laughs> you know you, you know you're not embraced by people who think, oh you're saying something negative about us, you know if you don't like it go somewhere else kind of attitude you know and and so I'm I've been the cause of my own problems and being isolated to some extent. You know, by saying things, maybe I should have <laughs> <laughs> been a little bit more um, diplomatic about. You know, because you know, because you know, people ask you in this business, uh, look, is, is, if, if, is there any racism in 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 Hollywood? Yeah, and 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 you're kind of like naive enough to say it in public in a big setting where yeah, <laughs> you know, and you, and they, you know, it's like, okay, uh, we won't deal with you anymore, you know, kind of attitudes, you know, and, but you say, but you learn, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I have a son who's in, who's going to LMU, Loyola Marymount, you know, I'm sort of coaching him on saying, like, don't say anything. <laughs> yeah,
2: Char- Charles, uh, Charles's discussion and master class, it was such a great, um, it was such a great, Honest portrayal of the practical challenges of, of producing and, and making films. And it was great with every visiting filmmaker, we we always um, take advantage of their visit to bring them up to the studio and, and give them a tour. And for most filmmakers, people are interested and excited that we're supporting independent filmmakers. Um, but Charles was extremely interested and you know, really. Uh, like wow this is all happening here and, and you're you're providing this support this level of support for free to filmmakers and uh, he was really really excited about it uh, and sure enough uh, the Monday right after his visit I got a call from a colleague and collaborator of his Lisa Katzman who was uh, has a documentary about the aftermath of 9/11 and environmental and health issues uh, and and uh, She's has sent a cut, and we've already started a discussion about the process. Uh, you know what the residency will be and what the workflow will be. So um, it's always exciting when when visiting filmmakers lead to residencies and vice versa. And this was a great example of that.
0: Yeah, and just in 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 kind of wrapping up, I think you know Chris, Jennifer, and I we we do talk all the time about um, you know the importance of. of um, supporting filmmakers, and whether that's in the studio or, you know, it is support to, to filmmakers to um, provide them a, a great venue to, to show their film, to, for them to interact with audiences. Believe it or not, most of them really um, enjoy that experience, too. And, um, you know, maybe 20 years ago, we would bring in, you know, 12, 15 filmmakers. Um, we've we've pretty much doubled that um, over the last handful of years, and and it's been very deliberate. Um, we really um, think it's. Um, uh, very, uh, it, it's it's of, of great interest um, to our audiences. They have they um, always give us you know positive feedback about those types of opportunities, and we really want people to to think of the Wexner Center as a place to come and and experience you know filmmakers in person and to watch their work with them and and to hear from them from them after. And we, you know already we have a lot of great filmmakers um, coming up in 2018. Um, Um, The local filmmaker, um, Chris Borneo, will be showing his documentary, Lady Lady Wrestler, in March. Um, Another local filmmaker, Vera Bruner-Song, will be showing her um, documentary, uh, Fallen Star, also in March. Um, In April, um, uh, Kimi Takasui will be um, visiting with her recent documentary, 95 and 6 to Go, a story about um, her relationship with her grandfather. And then... um, Probably the Visiting Filmmaker event that we're really, really looking forward to is a visit um, from the great Argentinian filmmaker Lucretia Martel in April. We'll be doing um, a full retrospective of her work, and she'll be here um, on April 18th with her new film, Zama, and um, you'll definitely want to be here for that. She's is truly one of the, the world's um, great working filmmakers right here. So in closing, um, thank you for listening to WexCast, and we hope to see you often
3: at the movies at the Wexner Center.